2 through 20. I implore Yodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Father, I look to you as I preach your word to be able to articulate and get across uh, something that may not be immediately intuitively obvious. I pray that uh, you would give to us uh, illumination, understanding of your word, and a delight to live in terms of it. And I pray that uh, this would be a passage that would grip our lives and would enable us to be stronger stewards as a result. We love you, and we continue to worship you during this time. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Well, this is the uh, 22nd sermon in the uh, series on the Christian and prosperity, and we have just scratched the surface. You might say, man, it's hard to believe in 22 sermons, you've just scratched the surface. I think we're going to wrap it up and uh, go back into Deuteronomy, but I thought before we end this series, I have to preach on the subject of Christian contentment. Uh, I think... Uh, uh, if we do not have Christian contentment, all of the words that I have spoken over the past 21 sermons on the Christian and prosperity are, are really wasted in a sense, at least in terms of our eternal uh, re rewards. Obviously, uh, if we follow some of those principles, the Lord's going to prosper us here below. But Christian contentment is an absolute imperative. In fact... Um, 
It's clear from Deuteronomy, when we lack contentment, God is not pleased to bless us. Some of the strongest curses, some of the strongest judgments that God brought against Israel in the Old Testament was why? Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 mentions it. It's because they grumbled and they complained and they lacked contentment in the Lord. But that's not the whole story. That's the one side of the equation. The other side of the equation is that God... uh, wanted these Israelites to be striving after uh, more of his presence and more of his blessings. In fact, God did not want Israel to be satisfied with anything less than the fullness of his will being lived out in their lives. And there's a sense in which then he wants them to have a holy discontentment. Okay, He did not want them going back to Egypt and being satisfied with the land of just enough. He wanted them to be looking forward to his gift of the land of plenty. He did not want them being satisfied with the status quo. He wanted them to be continually pressing toward growth into what God was going to be conforming them into. And so there is really a sense of tension between <coughs> the two sides of uh, this coin, um, the uh, subject here uh, seems to be in tension with the call of the Christian to pursue after holiness, in fact, to hunger and thirst after righteousness, you know, to be taking dominion over this world. Uh, it seems to be in tension with the, the call to be longing after, after the Lord. But uh, we're going to be seeing, hopefully, by the end, that it's impossible to have true contentment if we do not uh, the true contentment with God's will if we do not at the same time have a holy discontentment with anything that fights against God's will and His purposes in this world. Those two really go together. Now, one author, it was uh, Sir James Mackintosh, tried to give a biblical balance to this uh, subject because it really is a perplexing thing. How do you communicate it? But here's how he tried to do it. He said, "It is right to be contented with what we have." never with what we are. He's trying to say we're always supposed to be growing in the Lord. We're never contented with where we're at. But even that statement doesn't fully grasp all of the dynamics that go on in the biblical lesson on, uh, on contentment. Uh, because God says we have him, but we're not to be content with what we experienced yesterday. We're always supposed to be striving for more of the Lord today. And I'm sure that First of all, I want to point out, and I didn't have time last night to put out an overhead, but uh, first of all, I do not want to in any way minimize the radical nature, the supernatural character of this contentment. It is radical. Think about Paul's circumstances when he wrote this epistle. He was a prisoner in Rome, probably had lousy food, uh, was unable to travel, was unable to move about. He was waiting for a trial before Nero. So when Paul in chapter 4 here says, I have learned in whatever state I am to be content, he was not speaking just out of some false sense of, you know, a theory that's good, you know, pie in the sky theory, but it's not related to life. He had lived out the grace of contentment in the most difficult of circumstances. Six years earlier, he told the Corinthians, we who live are constantly being delivered over to death 
for Jesus' sake. He lived on the edge of death all the time. In fact, I think when you look at some of the circumstances that Paul faced, it helps you to see the supernatural, the radical character of what's going on here. In 2 Corinthians 6, he chronicles his life this way. In much endurance, in tribulations, in needs, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in fastings. In chapter 11, he said, in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the, you know, most of us only get to die once. Apparently, he had been raised from the dead more than once, you know, in deaths often. But um, he says, from the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. That's in the ocean, you know. Uh, In journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides all the other things. Well, you thought he had mentioned enough, but he says, besides all the other things, what comes upon me daily, deep concern for all the churches. I mean, many people, they look at his life, they would think, man, he's living a nightmare. And yet he speaks of his contentment in those circumstances. How in the world is that possible? Well, if we could learn what Paul learned in terms of contentment, I think it could help us to face the difficulties we face, and it would keep us from making idols out of the things that God blesses us with when he prospers our life. And I can assure you this did not happen by itself. It was something he had to learn, and he learned it over time. Look at verse 12. He says uh, there, I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Now that verb, I have learned, is a fascinating uh, verb in terms of its history of usage. And I don't know if any of you have the NIV, but if you look at the NIV, it fills out the translation a little bit more. And here's how uh, it translates it. It says, I have learned the secret. Why did they add the little word secret there? I think it is justified. Uh, The reason is the Greek word is mueo, which is the root word for, for musterion or mystery or secret. Okay, the dictionary defines mueo as to initiate into mysteries. And it was a technical word that was used by the mystery religions for being initiated into their secrets. Okay, so mystery is a secret. Paul is borrowing language that was commonly known throughout the Greek world at that time. And he's basically saying, I've been initiated into the secrets of what it means to be contented. Okay, and I want you to enter into those same secrets because without... Contentment, like I said earlier, uh, all that I have said is going to be wasted breath in a sense in terms of the Lord's purposes for prosperity. Contentment is a prerequisite to enjoying prosperity, and contentment is a prerequisite to keeping from falling into idolatry when the Lord does prosper us with that. So we've got to have it, and without the Lord... We're never going to get that contentment. It's not something we can say, okay, I'm going to roust it up in myself. It's something we have to claim from the throne of Christ, claim from the cross of Christ. 
because Romans tells us that uh, there isn't any man, woman or child, that has contentment by themselves. And I think any of you who have children know that's the case, right? Uh, it's just amazing the capacity that children have to wanting more of this and that and whatever. And we're just grown-up children in that regard uh, unless we have been sanctified by God's grace. Uh, Romans says we are all, by nature, uh, complainers and discontent. Jude says these are murmurers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts. In fact, uh, <coughs> this was such a, a normal part of life that you could bank on that uh, Noah Webster used this to uh, try to jog his memory at times. You know how you can walk up to a person and you know you've seen him, you know you've met him, but you can't bring to the, to, to, to the top of your brain what their name was. Well, here's how he would get around that. Uh, he would say, well, how's the old complaint? And nine times out of ten, these guys would start talking about the old complaint, you know, that uh, they had shared with him before. And, uh, you know, complain about whatever it was that was ailing them, and it would give him enough time to jog his memory where he could say, oh, yeah, I remember who this guy was, and uh, be able to talk with them. And it's a kind of a sad testimony, you know, but um, we tend to be complainers, and we tend not to be content and satisfied with what the Lord brings into our lives. Uh, discontent is natural, not contentment. And we're going to contrast a little bit later on how the world does have a counterfeit. It does have uh, what they call contentment, but in many cases, all it amounts to is indifference. It's not the supernatural thing that flows from the Lord Jesus Christ. The person who has biblical contentment can have at the very same time the biblical longings of David, the biblical longings of the Apostle Paul. Okay, Those are not in any way incompatible. So I want us to get a little bit of a feel for what this contentment is And one of the ways that we can tell if we have contentment is if we have the accompanying graces. Now, there are several others that uh, I'm not going to go into. I'm just going to look at four from this particular chapter. Four accompanying graces. He speaks of uh, his joy in verse 10. And joy and contentment are linked together throughout, actually, the epistle of Philippians, where you find Biblical contentment, you're going to find people who have a greater capacity to joy. And uh, so far, that's, that's great. You know, most of us have experienced joy at one time or another. But if you look at verse 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And because we're going to be disheartened with that concept, he says, No, I'm not kidding, guys. Again, I will say, rejoice. He says, in every circumstance you find yourself in, you need to be able to rejoice. And the person who has contentment has the ability to do that because circumstances do not ruffle him. His needs do not ruffle him. Um, the truly contented person is not robbed of joy just because something, you know, life throws a curve at him or whatever. And so if you've had joy robbed from your life, you might want to examine, have I... Uh, been missing out on this supernatural gift from the Holy Spirit of contentment. It may be that uh, it is lacking from your life because these two do go hand in hand. And let me tell you something else. Joy and the rejoicing of the Lord always, just as that is something that we cannot, no unbeliever ever has that. They have counterfeits, but they don't have that. No unbeliever can have contentment. Uh, verse 5 speaks of another grace. 
It speaks of gentleness. Let your gentleness be known to all men. Now, actually, the translation gentleness does not capture the full aspect of the Greek. I just copied uh, this morning from William Hendrickson, and uh, he says there is no English word to convey what is meant by the Greek word there. Uh, but he says, here's a, a few samplings, big-heartedness, forbearance, yieldedness, geniality, kindliness, gentleness, sweet reasonableness, considerateness, charitableness, mildness, magnanimity, generosity. He says, the lesson which Paul teaches is that true blessedness cannot be obtained by the person who rigorously insists on whatever he regards as his just due. So you can have a person who has this characteristic but cleanses the temple, and uh, uh, those two can be compatible because he is consumed by the glory of God when he did that, uh, <coughs> but uh, does not get bent out of shape when uh, he is personally attacked. Harshness flows from a spirit that's frustrated, lacks contentment. And so if you don't have gentleness, and you can add in all of the synonyms that are given uh, there, if it's something where you just feel like you've always got to be lashing back, ask the Lord for this contentment because it may be one of the underlying graces that will enable you to uh, uh, to be able to enter into that. Verse 6 speaks of a lack of anxiety. Verse 7 speaks of peace. And anxiety and stress are not uh, consistent with contentment. And I think this is very apropos for what we have been dealing with in this series. One of the ironies of life is that the more we accumulate, the more we tend to think that we need. And the more that we accumulate, the more anxieties that we tend to face. You'd think it'd be the other way around, that the person who was the dirt poorest of all would have the most anxieties, and the person who is richest would have less anxieties, but many times it's not that way. When you're materialistic, whether you're poor or rich, uh, anxiety can uh, grab hold of you. And uh, contentment has nothing to do, absolutely nothing to do with how much you own. It has to do with who has your heart. And you can think of a few examples. You can think of Adam and Eve. Uh, Adam and Eve had everything. They had paradise. Uh, they had it all to themselves, didn't even have to share it with anybody else except for one thing. And uh, without contentment, that one thing seemed like everything to them. You can think of other examples. <clears throat> uh, maybe you would think that uh, you'd be less anxious if you had the authority to call the shots. But you can think of uh, King Ahab. He had more authority. In fact, he had more of everything than anybody else in Israel. And yet he didn't have Naboth's vineyard. And that really stressed him out. I mean, you could just see how it messed up his life. He wanted what he did not have. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes that his soul was restless and discontented because he had not found his contentment in God. He had absolutely everything. You can think of Lucifer, the most powerful creature that God had created. No one had more authority than he did because he was the archangel. No one had more power, more glory except for God. And what does he do? He covets what God has. And uh, he is uh, cast out of heaven. He was not content. Now, in total contrast to that, Paul said that he had been abased, he had been empty, and yet in those circumstances, he had learned 
contentment. We, I think, many times find, tend to find or try to find our security or our peace or comfort from the things that we accumulate. You know, I just need a few more things before I'm going to feel like I'm safe and comfortable. And, um, and if that's the true of you, uh, you may need to be initiated into the secrets of Paul's contentment. Those graces really go together. Uh, other graces involved, let me just give you one more, and I'm not going to amplify on that because a little bit later we're going to come back to this. But verses 10 through 20 show the grace of gratitude, gratitude even in the simple things of life. <clears throat> Have you been grateful to the Lord for simple things like clean water, clean air, and a bed to sleep in? We tend to take those kinds of things for granted. And yet gratitude is ever so important if we're going to uh, have uh, contentment. Uh, gratitude completely rules out the Greek Stoic definition of contentment. Uh, one ancient uh, Stoic writer, his uh, name is Epictetus, uh, tried to promote his uh, version of contentment. And I want to read, read it for you because I, I think you'll see how lame the counterfeit is compared to the real thing. Here's his recipe. He says, begin with a cup or a household utensil. If it breaks, say, I don't care. Go on to a horse or a pet dog. If anything happens to it, say, I don't care. Go on to yourself, and if you're hurt or injured in any way, say, I don't care. And if you go on long enough, and if you try hard enough, you will come to a state when you can watch your nearest and dearest suffer and die and say, I don't care. That's not contentment. That's indifference. Contented people in the Bible are not indifferent to the things that go on around them. There's a total difference between I don't care and being contented uh, in a a biblical uh, way. And what he's basically trying to do is to harden yourself and abolish feeling and abolish emotion. You know, biblical contentment is very compatible with emotional passion. Paul was a man of passions. He had incredible passions. I don't know if they were the ones that were on the movie that you were telling me about earlier today. I'll have to watch it. But uh, he was a man who was very passionate but he had contentment. And so what I want to do in the remainder of this sermon is I want to look at seven things that can promote contentment in our lives and our steps, if you will, they're definitely essentials of having contentment. Um, First of all, faith, and it's specifically a faith or a confidence in God's providence and in God's timing. I think there's a lot of discontent that's just It just flows out of God's not getting here soon enough, you know, with finances or whatever it may be. It's a lack of trust in God's timing. Uh, Verse 10 says, But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Now, ten years had passed since the Philippians had last given their gift to him. We're not told why there was no gift in the intervening years. I mean, they were poor then, they're poor now. Uh, we're, we're not told why that is. But Paul says he had a sense of contentment before the gift. He had a sense of contentment after the gift. And he's basically saying God's sovereign. He was not blaming them. He said they didn't have opportunity. He just knew it was not possible for them uh, to do that. And his statement expresses a confidence in God's timing and providence. Do you have confidence in God's timing for finances, God's timing for having a baby, uh, God's uh, uh, timing and whatever it is that you're looking forward to, maybe in 2002? 
Uh, it, it takes faith to believe that the Lord is going to provide for us when we can't see it right now. And it even takes faith when we have the resources now, but we're wondering, am I going to have the resources six months from now? But a faith in God's providence and his timing. It rests on God, not on what we have. Contestment, contentment rests on God, not on what we have. And throughout this chapter, you see evidences of his faith. Uh, verse 4 hints at faith in God's goodness. Uh, verse 5 hints at faith in God's control of the opposition that evil brings against him. Verse 6 shows faith in God's generosity. And throughout the chapter, you see wisdom, the goodness of God, the power of God, his kindness, his love, and that he's the God who supplies all of our needs. Why is that something that can bring contentment? Because his God is with him wherever he goes, and his God is for him, and if God is for us, who can be against us? He had a faith in God. The second essential step was servanthood. Paul begins every epistle that he uh, writes just about with uh, an expression of him being a bond slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here in this chapter, he's got two troublemakers in the church, Yodia and uh, Syntyche. Uh, some people have called them odious and soon touchy. Um, uh, but Instead of lording it over their faith, he still says, you're fellow laborers with me. I'm really no better than you. I'm a bond slave just like your bond slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's his favorite subject, is serving uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. He was conscious of his needs. He mentions in 2 Corinthians 6 that he had needs. He mentions here that he had needs. But in verse 11, Paul says, not that I speak in regard to need. That's the key phrase. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. In other words, it was not Paul's needs that drove him. That's key. It was not his needs that drove him. Now, this may take a little more explanation, but I think you'll quickly realize this is really foundational. In one of his books, uh, John MacArthur points out that our culture tends to be a very need-driven culture. <coughs> Uh, advertising creates needs in us we didn't even realize existed before um, you know there are women who don't want to be liberated but they're constantly told that they need to be liberated there are young people who want to stay pure and they're constantly being told that they need to be liberated you know uh, sexually otherwise they're going to have repressed egos uh, there are so many ways in which we are a need driven society in fact even ministries even churches many times focus on, uh, on needs rather than on what the, the, the Lord would have them focus on. And you look at different psychologies, uh, how people counsel uh, individuals, whether it's Freud or Maslow or uh, whoever it may be, they all tend to be reductionistic. It's one need or another that explains their whole system. And it's a totally backwards look to the Lord. In fact, um, I've got an essay that if any of you want to take a look at that goes through all of the, uh, the basic uh, uh, motivations and needs that drive different psychologies, reinterprets it within a biblical grid and shows how it's the exact antithesis of the biblical approach where we are driven by servanthood and responsibility. It's uh, one of the professors at um, uh, Westminster East, and, and the name doesn't come to me, but it is a marvelous, uh, a marvelous paper on that. <clears throat> um, I expect if we were to write down on a piece of paper what things we think 
that we need, we'd come up with quite a list, and I'm sure that Paul had a list. Here are some of the needs uh, that I have. But Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, 8, and having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. Can Phil Kaiser be content without another purchasing another hundred books in the year 2002? <laughs> Can Bob Fugate be content, you know, without another hundred books in the year? Now, that's not saying we ought not to buy books. I'm planning to buy books, you know, this coming year. But the point is, if, if my contentment rests on getting those things, I'm never going to have contentment. He says, having food and clothing, with these we will be content. He's talking about being homeless, and yet the Lord's providing for his daily survival each day, and he's willing to be content with exactly that. If you can be content there, you can be content being blessed with the incredible riches of Abraham. Okay? So it's not an issue of how much. You can be trusted with a tremendous amount if you can have contentment there. And so instead of Paul being driven by needs, Paul is wrapped up in something that is far larger than himself. It is who you are following that determines where you are going. Okay? And he is wrapped up in God and in God's kingdom. And it's the greatness of the vision of what he is wrapped up that gives him the ability to be contented. Because Paul had an absolute trust in God, that's point A. Because his heart was given to serving God, that's point B. He could handle the curves in life that uh, are sent to him with contentment. And you can just think of uh, his situation in prison because right while he's writing this uh, epistle, he's in prison and people may be feeling sorry for him. And he can say, no, I'm content with what the Lord's provided. In fact, the Lord's provided absolutely everything I need in order to glorify him in this prison. I, I've got a little food. I've got a little water. I've got, uh, you know, a blanket to keep me warm. In fact, uh, come to think about it, I've got free board and rent. And I've got a free place. I've got a guard that's uh, protecting me from marauders. And uh, I've got a captive audience here. You know, I've got these uh, soldiers who cannot get away from my preaching. Wow, what an ideal situation. Uh, don't even buzz out right away. They're chained to me for crying out loud. And some of them have become converted. And in Philippians chapter 1, through those guards, salvation has come even into Caesar's household. He says, yes, I'm contented. Why? Because I am not driven by my comforts. I am driven by serving the Lord and his purposes and his greatness being exalted. Can you see that? His servant heart makes him have a focus where he's able to be contented in whatever circumstance he's in. Thirdly, submission to God's purposes in our lives. There's trust, there's a servant's heart, there's submission. Now, Paul did not get bitter over life. He did not buck against God's providences. Uh, let's read verses 11 through 12. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Now, being abased is a hard thing to experience after you have been exalted. Uh, but Paul could say in both circumstances, hey, if it's God's will for me to be abased, I am willing to be abased. And if God's glory and his kingdom will be better advanced through my having plenty, hey, I'm not going to refuse the plenty. You know, the fact that uh, he was contented did not mean that Paul did not ask for money. He asked for money on a number of occasions, 
But the point is, he was willing to say, Lord, if you're providentially making it impossible for me to pursue aggressively in this direction, whether it's going to a Macedonia or some other place, I'm willing to submit to whatever it is you have for me. And I think one of the most powerful examples of sweet submission to God's sovereign will, on the one hand, being balanced with an aggressive desire toward dominion, is William Carey. And I, I know I've given this illustration before, but uh, I just love this. William Carey was a missionary to the land of India, and he was an incredible linguist. Everybody, even secular people, recognized his linguistic skills. And he had various Indian translations which were ready to print. He had a Canarese New Testament, two large Old Testament books in Sanskrit. He had made a Bengali dictionary, a Telugu grammar, a Punjabi grammar, and then the magnum opus of his linguistic life, there was a well-advanced dictionary of Sanskrit. Now, what had happened is he had brought all of these manuscripts together at the printing house to be printed. And that just makes me sick to even think about it. But they're all there, and the place catches on fire, and he loses everything. Years and years of devoted work that he has been working, long, long hours, they all went up in flames. And... Uh, uh, it's kind of ironic. Uh, yesterday, when I was actually typing this into the computer, my computer crashed, and I thought I'd lost everything. I said, okay, Lord, you're wanting to test me on this contentment thing. <laughs> okay, am I going to submit to your will? I think one of the hardest things for me to submit to God's will on would be, now obviously losing your family, but losing all the things that I have written and losing my books. You know, because that's kind of your life. You identify with that. But the Lord, a number of years ago, dealt with me on that and said, Phil, you've got to realize, if you have nothing but me, you've got to be contented. And anyway, on the day that um, that fire happened, uh, as soon as other people got news of it, they began complaining. They were thinking, doesn't God care about missions? Why did God allow this to happen? Was God not in control? What's going on here? They were very troubled over the fact that years of work had gone down the tubes. And... Uh, Kerry realized God doesn't need us. He doesn't need all my linguistic uh, uh, efforts. In a moment of time, he could convert everybody in the world if he chose to. The reason he's allowing us to work for him is so that we can experience his grace, so that we can grow more conformed to his image, so that we can know him and the power of his resurrection. So anyway, Kerry handled it uh, in an incredibly godly way. <clears throat> he, he said, nothing was saved but the presses. This is a heavy blow as it will stop our printing the scriptures for a long time. But God will no doubt bring good out of this evil and make it promote our interests. Devastating blow, but he had a faith in God's providence. On the same day, Kerry's colleague Marshman wrote this, another leaf in the ways of providence calling for the exercise of faith in him whose word, firm as the pillars of heaven, has decreed that all things shall work together for good to them that love God. Be strong, therefore, in the Lord. He will never forsake the work of his hands. And uh, those of you who know the story know that uh, his labors in the Lord were not in vain. This so crushed the linguists in, uh, uh, in uh, England that all of the newspapers and the magazines began focusing on what had happened and tons of money was raised up for this translation work. And there were hundreds of people that went to India feeling 
the call to translation, there was far more that got translated and far more quickly than if he had done it by himself. And so the Lord brought tremendous good out of that. But the point is, he didn't know what was going to happen down the road, but he was in total sweet submission to God's will. And I think we need to have that realization as well that God does not need our labors. We ought not to be so performance-oriented, you know, that we feel we have no worth if we have not uh, outperformed, you know, whatever somebody else has done. Now, obviously, Scripture does want us to work hard. That's the servant's heart thing. So all of these points have to be in balance. But we need to be able to say, Lord, if you want me taken out, I'm happy to be taken out. My desire is for you to be glorified. If you want me exalted and you will be best glorified in exalting me, do it, Lord, but I want to submit to your will. And there may be times where he will test you on that. This does not mean we are passive. Kerry got right back to work and he worked hard and uh, reestablishing some of the things that, that uh, he had lost. He had an aggressive uh, dominion attitude. Now, the fourth principle is dependence upon and the experience of divine power. In fact, I would say that it's impossible to have contentment if all you've got is a form of godliness and uh, you deny the power thereof because you're going to be constantly restless. You're going to sense you need something because you cannot have contentment. God has made you for something more. And it's when the, the, the power of God's grace has filled your sails that you can speed to do his will. He says here, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. See, we have been created to glorify God and to enjoy Him, and we cannot fully enjoy God if we are not filled with God. His presence, His power must be in our lives, and so the experiential Christianity is never completely fulfilled until it is filled with God's power. Paul said, Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power. Get that? It's not just in word, but it's also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance. That's 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 5. And so the person who is empowered by Christ can be contented. You can't without it. Your heart's going to be restless because God's made you to be in that position empowered by him. I want you to go back to the previous chapter, Philippians 3, and uh, let's just read through verses 7 through 11. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. He's saying his goal in life is to know him and his power and fellowship in his sufferings. You have to take the good right along with the bad, but it's knowing him that was the key. <clears throat> so it's not what you have, <clears throat> but who you have that really counts in life. Uh, the fifth uh, principle was already alluded to, it's gratitude. Uh, Paul's already expressed his gratitude to them in chapter 2, but he does so again in this passage. And I think you can especially see it in verses 14 through 18. He praises them 
Verse 14 saying, you have done well. Verse 15, he's amazed at their generosity. Here they are, poverty-stricken, and yet they've given more generously than others. Verse 16, he remembers past actions, not just the present one. Verse 18, he calls the gift a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. I mean, Paul was genuinely grateful for what they had done. And this is a passage that, oh, uh, quite a number of years ago, taught me the grace of receiving. I used to be, and again, it's just pride, but I used to have it so hard time receiving gifts from other people. Uh, it's it just like, oh, I don't want to be beholden, you know. It's like, I'm not worthy. I can't receive this from, from, uh, from you. But Paul, I think, just manifests a wonderful way of showing a grateful spirit for what's being given and yet not demanding, not expecting, not having that expecting attitude. Uh, Lord Congleton uh, tells a story where he overheard his cook in the kitchen uh, saying, Oh, if I only had five pounds, wouldn't I be content? And thinking the matter over, he, he decided he wants her to be pleased. He went into that room and he handed her a five-pound note and she thanked him profusely, but uh, he left. As soon as the door closed, he stuck his ear up because she was always talking to herself, you know, and he knew exactly what she thought. And uh, the words that came out of her mouth as soon as the door was closed is, why didn't I say ten? <laughs> You know, oh, I'd be contented, you know, if I had five. Here it comes five. Oh, man, I should have asked for ten. Gratitude is really essential ingredient to contentedness, and we'll never be content without it. Sixth element, just got two more to go. The sixth element is unselfishness or concern for others. He says in verse 17, not that I seek the gift. Okay, he didn't have the attitude, I deserve this you know, demanding it, expecting the gift. He says, no, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. And it, it just delighted his heart to know these Philippians who were poor, they knew the recipe to prosperity that we've been talking about in the past. And he knew as they shared in his ministry, the Lord would prosper them, that he would increase them. And it brought joy to his heart. He goes on to verse, uh, say in verse 19, my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in Christ Jesus. Now, again, it might have been very tempting for him to say, I can't take this, you know, from you. You're, uh, uh, you're just too poverty stricken. Uh, I just insist you keep this gift. But he would have robbed them of their expression of love and robbed them of their joy in giving. And so Paul thinks of them when he receives the, uh, the, the gift graciously. And he's thinking about the needs of others. Philippians 2, 4, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Okay, final element of contentment is vision. Verses 19 through 20, my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. <clears throat> when you seek God and his kingdom, you seeking his glory, you're driven by kingdom values, you're going to have the strange paradox that you're going to have this discontentment with everything that fights against God, against God's kingdom, against the advancement of his purposes, but you're also be, going to be contented with having God and having God's will in your life. The two are going to go uh, hand in hand. And so the key to contentment is to not allow anything in creation to drive us. 
I think many times we short-circuit because we think, okay, it's God that's driving me, but it's not. It's our performance for God that is driving us. And I think this can let us down on the rocks of discouragement so easily. We've got to perform better for the Lord. Contentment does the exact opposite thing. It starts with the realization that God's already received us. You know, when we're trying to impress, uh, we're, we're, we're working hard because we want to impress people. You know, most people eventually are, are not going to be impressed, and God doesn't need to be impressed. Uh, God says we're accepted in the Beloved. We don't have to work for acceptance. We're accepted, and it's out of that acceptance that we can serve him joyfully. That's the recipe for contentedness. It's uh, not to be performance-oriented where we're, you know, we're constantly trying to, um, uh, you know, uh, find the the favor of other people. And so, as I've mentioned earlier, we... He does not need our performance. He lets us serve to give us opportunities to taste of his grace, experience his mercy, draw closer to him. Uh, performance looks to the approval of others, and contentment realizes I'm already approved, and so I, I serve in light of that approval. We don't need to be driven by needs, since verse 19 says all our needs are already met in Christ. We don't need to be driven by the expectations of family and friends because we're relating to them as stewards. They're not ours anyway. Okay, we've given them to the Lord. And he says, no one who has given up, husband, wife, children, lands, for my sake and the gospels, shall not receive the same things back 100-fold. Okay, we give them to the Lord. And the Lord says, okay, I'm going to help you now to enjoy that wife, enjoy that husband, enjoy those children, to be contented with the things that the Lord has given to you where you're not desiring constantly.